Um, today we're going to cover an aspect of HIPAA and the privacy rule that isn't often a focus, but is becoming increasingly relevant as digital um, innovation is transforming healthcare. Patients expect their medical records to be available through digital formats, including mobile applications, and have a growing number of digital tools now that are available to them. Um, in addition to pressure from patients, David will talk about the federal government um, has recently made a significant movement to make healthcare more consumer friendly by creating easier access to electronic PHI through technology and most importantly, giving patients more control over their health information. So first, David will walk us through how we got here, the history, and most importantly, the intent um, of HIPAA right of access and how these changes really represent the modernization of healthcare. We'll also review regulatory and patient demands that are driving change and applying the patient experience context using women's breast health as an example at scale. And we'll take you through some scenarios um, that we commonly see in the data sharing space um, and dissect those scenarios for you a little bit. And then finally, we'll talk through some steps you can take to ensure that your organization is prepared to meet your requirements. So this session is really going to be particularly informative if you rely on technology that we would consider a little bit outdated today, like CDs and faxes to deliver patients their data, or if you simply don't know how your organization is sharing protected health information with patients today. So we're really hoping to strengthen your knowledge regarding government mandates and policy changes to meet increased patient demand to share information in digital formats using HIPAA compliant channels, which will ultimately catalyze change while maintaining compliance. So without further delay, I'll turn it over to David to take us through the history and again, most importantly, the intent behind HIPAA, which will set some really valuable context for your work and the rest of today's discussion. David? Thanks, Kristen. Appreciate it. And um, thanks for inviting me to speak today. I'm looking forward to this talk on a topic that I think is of, you know, in my perspective, it's always been um, important, but it is of growing importance um, in, the, in, in the modern era. So I, I think um, before we get to kind of current examples and use cases and, and the specific use cases, around imaging and um, that, that we're gonna talk about later uh, in, in the presentation. I think it's important to start with a little bit of level setting. You know, how did we get to the point that we're at today? And any discussion about um, data and accessing data and the rules of the road related to health information and health data, it really does start with HIPAA. Um, and you know that dates us back to, uh, uh, believe it or not, 1996 went into effect in the early 2000s. A lot of people forget that um, you know HIPAA, uh, the acronym stands for you know Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. It was originally about um, health insurance portability, the privacy and security side, the rules ab about protecting data came in um, not really as an afterthought, but as a secondary um, com component. Um, and, um, you know, in some ways the rules were, um, you could say that today they're outdated, but in other ways they were very forward thinking in that 
the um, uh, the, you know, the, the drafters of the rules thought a lot about not just protecting information, but also making sure that healthcare information could get to individuals that need it in order to provide the care in a uh, in, a, in a high quality manner, manner to permit payment in an efficient manner, and, and so on. And so we've, you know, we've had the um, HIPAA privacy and security rules in place for many years now, but but the reality is, is technology has evolved significantly since then. The slide that's up now, the the second slide, um, which makes reference to a report that came out in the late 90s by the Institute of Medicine. Um, this is a very famous report to Air is Human, and in this report, um, the the institute analyzed um, uh, ways that we can improve our healthcare system. And one of the things that they noted, and remember, this is from an electronic health information perspective. This is kind of the dark ages. Um, one of the things that they noted is, look, we, we can uh, provide care. You know, you think of the triple aim. Um, we can provide better care um, at, at higher quality if we utilize modern technology. Um, you know, in 1999, um, you know, the internet was just uh, booming, but in healthcare, of course, um, you know, the amount of, especially clinical information that was in digital form was, was very, very fall, small. Um, in, in, in terms of the next slide, um, um, there, there was political will, though, to expand on, you know, in light of this report saying, hey, we think we can save lives if we utilize modern technology, if we digitize health information. Um, uh, it was actually in 2004, State of the Union address, that there was a discussion about, hey, we really need to build out the infrastructure, the um, IT infrastructure in healthcare. But of course, at that time, uh, next slide, the, the amount of health information that was in electronic form was only about, you know, I, the number is 8% of, um, and I think in this case, we're talking about hospital systems. At, in, in 2004, 2005, it was only 8% penetration of clinical uh, electronic health records in the clinical space. Um, it's hard to believe that now, um, but interestingly, you know, how did we get to where we are today? Um, you know, that's a picture of President Obama signing the American Reinvestment Recovery Act. Um, you know, there we were in the middle of an economic crisis in 2009. And part of that Recovery Act was a shovel-ready project known as the High-Tech Act. Um, that takes us to the next slide. And it, it's in the High-Tech Act that came the funding to... Um, uh, build out what I call the um, electronic health record infrastructure in this country. What what that really got translated to is the meaningful use program. Okay, how is that relevant here? So we started with HIPAA rules of the road about how data should flow. In the High Tech Act, the, the government said, "Look, we want to deploy these electronic health records, but we want them to be used in a meaningful way, right?" And that you know, those standards, the meaningful use standards. Interestingly, uh, part of meaningful use stages two and three included what's known as the view, download, and transmit standards. Well, why is that important today? Well, uh, it, it's important for a couple of reasons. One, it was the federal government saying that, you know, we will 
we believe that these meaningful use dollars need to be tied in part to healthcare institutions making information available to patients in a very modern and efficient way. And so we are going, one of the criteria, one of the, the key steps tied to accessing the meaningful use funding is demonstrating that an institution has the ability to permit patients to view, download, and transmit um, online in a very efficient manner. Um, as we move on, though, a couple things went on in the intervening years. So the High Tech Act went into effect in 2009. The uh, electronic health record systems really got deployed over the next 10 years as we lead up to where we are today. And at this point, by the way, I think it's something like 98. That that 8% number is now 98%. Okay, so the infrastructure is there. Um, patient at the same time, think about how much technology has evolved over the last 10 years. I think that people forget that the iPhone is really only 12 years old. You know, the smartphone industry, if you look at it, at the iPhone as really being the leader and many others that followed. It's really only a 10-year-old industry, and patient expectations and provider expectations about what they can do with these phones has accelerated even far faster than you know, the High Tech Act, for example, and the standards around meaningful use. The expectations for how we, we utilize health information with modern technology has far outpaced that. So in, in 2000, a couple of things went on in, the, in over the last five years. One is um, uh, we had a lot more education um, with the, um, this is a publication that, that was put out by the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT, just advising patients about the current rules under HIPAA and the High Tech Act, okay? What the government realizes, there's lots of confusion about what, um, you know, the, the right of patient access. And that's really what we're going to drill down on today. But before we get into some, some use cases that really fall under HIPAA and high tech, the other thing to note is there's, there's been quite a bit of emphasis just over the last couple of years um, in the wake of a statute that was passed at the end of the Obama administration, may as well go to the next slide, um, called the 21st Century Cures Act. And that this statute has since been um, picked up by the current administration, and a set of rules was published um, earlier this year that that take the statute and really um, kind of uh, put put meat on the bones of the statute in a number of different areas. You know, we could probably do a full hour just on the Cures Act, but we won't. But suffice it to say that um, uh, what 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 this law does is. T take the concept of, of patient right of access and really marry it to modern technology. What the Cures Act does is it says two main things to players in the healthcare space that handle health information. One is it's, it's attempting to set some nationwide standards for um, open APIs that will enable uh, data to, health data to be accessed by patients. And the touch phrase in the statute is, without special effort, okay, without special effort. What the, what the government is really saying is we think that um, HIPAA and high tech don't go far enough in light of modern technology and we need to utilize the, the um, you know, APIs that 
enable us to use our phone to order a, an Uber or a Lyft, for example, or to order uh, products on Amazon. That same technology should enable us to, to readily um, obtain health information uh, that we need to provide care for ourselves and our family. And so the 21st Century Cures Act requires the um, agencies, CMS and HHS, to, uh, to develop and implement standards that will enable data to be accessed, quote unquote, without special effort. The other thing that the Cures Act does that's really important and relevant to our discussion today is it, Im it imposes a restriction around what they what it, what's called information blocking, okay? And it, it also says to the agencies, we need you to develop penalties for implementation blocking, or rather information blocking, um, and sets out a timeline to do that. Here's the easy way to distill the 21st Century Cures Act, where HIPAA and the HITECH Act said that data may flow. What the 21st Century Cures Act does is says the data shall flow, okay? With certain limited exceptions, the data shall flow to patients via open standard APIs. The data shall flow between healthcare organizations that have a right via HIPAA to access that information, but they shouldn't um, block or inhibit the flow of information that may be needed for care to be provided at, you know, from one institution for another. Now, the other thing I want to say here at the outset is, although um, HIPAA and the High Tech Act are not only, you know, the statutes passed and the rules finalized, on the Cures Act, what we have is a statute, so a very high-level pronouncement where the rules are in motion. We got proposed rules in February. They're not finalized yet. So it's a bit of a coming attraction on the details of the Cures Act. But what is clear from the Cures Act, again, this is a, this is a statute that came from a, a Democratic administration picked up by the current administration. And, it, and, and it's not politically controversial. The direction is we need to utilize modern technology meaning existing EHR infrastructure and, and now mobile devices, we need to utilize that technology to help get the information to those who need it to provide care or make good care decisions. So it really is important, I think, for healthcare organizations and those who advise them or those on the compliance side or those who are trying to implement these things to understand the, the direction the non, uh, I call it, it's like mom and apple pie. This stuff from a policy perspective really isn't controversial. The devil is certainly in the details though. What will the standards look like? When will the implementation deadlines be? So, you know, and that's something to certainly stay tuned. So what we're gonna do now with the rest of our time today, with that is kind of the background, where we came from uh, and, and where things are heading. I think what we're gonna do now is we're gonna pivot into you know, some, some specific examples of how these rules may uh, impact the patient experience, and then in particular, looking at the use cases of, of breast cancer treatment. So with that, I will turn it back to Kristen. Thank you, David. That's great. And I think the, that context is so critical and so important. I think there's something that you that you touched on that's particularly relevant as we think about uh, the universe as it stands in front of us today and what my team does at Life Image 
Um, we work with patients on a daily basis and their providers to get them digital access to the records that are maintained on them so that they can, you know, seek the best care possible. Um, and, you know, when we talk to institutions and organizations about privacy um, and compliance and, and kind of releasing this information, you know, what, what we often hear in terms of HIPAA is um, almost a, a fear on that privacy side. So uh, a conservative approach where um, they're very careful about what they release. Um, and so it's just really, it, I think, important context to set, you know, you talked about portability and giving patients access, and that really was the intent. Um, so I'll talk a little bit, um, just set the, the stage a little bit here around what the patient experience feels like for most patients seeking care at most healthcare institutions today, including some of the largest, most innovative and well-known institutions in the country. Um, David mentioned, you know, the stats look like about, you know, 98% of health systems in the country now maintain records electronically. But when it comes to sharing data with patients, that experience is not translating. So today, if a patient needs access to their medical records, they are often um, shared those records on a CD um, and they are having to courier those records themselves. So making the request, driving in, getting them and then taking them to um, a new facility. But patient expectations are shifting. So David talked about the iPhone. Um, we want things more digital in our lives and more specifically, uh, patients are starting to hold healthcare to the same standard as what we do in the rest of our consumer lives. We're looking for, you know, that mirrored experience where things are more instantaneous, they're more easy to access, and they're more online. But unfortunately, most patient data today is still held in proprietary silos and proprietary software and stuck essentially uh, inside the four walls of any given healthcare facility. It's actually not uncommon for hospitals or um, imaging centers within the same health system to be unable to actually exchange data with one another from one building um, to another. We actually hear stories of cardiologists or um, other specialists, oncologists that will hand carry a CD across the street because they know that it's going to take much longer for them to mail it to each other because that's how they typically have to do it, um, which is pretty incredible thinking about um, 2019 and the technology that, that's available. So when a patient is in need of their data, let's say they have a diagnosis and they're seeking treatment, maybe they're seeking a second opinion, seeing a specialist, or they move. Um, time really is of the essence in that case when you think about their care. And today the burden's on them to drive across town, wait, pick up physical media, and you know you, you put yourself in their shoes for a moment and you consider having a cancer diagnosis, needing your medical records so that you can go seek treatment at a specialist or maybe another facility. And the clock is ticking and the clock feels like it's against you. So the delay in getting your images, waiting for something in the mail, driving across town, um, all of that stress and potentially redundant testing, if you can't find your records, having to get re-imaged and paying for that um, is really just is unacceptable. And um, again, you know, there's a financial cost here 
as so many of us now have high deductible health plans, which plays into consumer expectations as well. Um, they're shopping for care, you know, with a $4,000 deductible, um, you know, what else would you rather have for $4,000? So consumers are making, you know, really difficult decisions today. So to give a, a real world kind of clinical example of why it's so important to have, you know, complex health data, health records, um, in particular, something incredibly complex and large like imaging available at the ready for patients and providers, um, breast cancer is an incredible um, example. So, you know, this is one where interoperability, um, the lack of interoperability and free information sharing between patients and providers has very obvious clinical and experiential impacts. So without priors for comparison over time, so what you're seeing in the left-hand column, um, you have women coming back in for more costly and more invasive tests, right? Anywhere from, you know, another couple hundred dollars for a diagnostic mammogram that takes longer and requires more time away from work to a biopsy that could be twelve, fourteen hundred dollars And um, recent data is showing that the average cost for a patient in the year after they receive a false positive, so that's um, a callback where they thought they might have seen cancer, but it turns out um, whatever they found was benign, is about $852 a patient. And when patients don't have that prior imaging available and their doctor doesn't have it available when they arrive for their breast cancer screening, they're 260% more likely to get called back for more testing. Um, this is a woman who now believes that she has cancer. Um, her family now believes that she may have cancer and is now having to go back for uh, more tests because there's just no benchmark. Um, whereas on the flip side, with those prior exams available, with that imaging available in her hands, she can make sure that her doctor has everything that they need um, to provide great, you know, adequate treatment recommendations to catch cancer earlier. We say way less false positives and 30% of cancer can be found when it's more treatable and hasn't um, spread as far and it, of course it's less costly um, to treat. So some pretty incredible impacts and you know, using breast cancer again as an example, we're talking about a problem that's impacting a significant um, portion of the population in the country. So we have um, over 60 million women in the U.S. that receive mammograms every one to two years, so regular mammograms, over the course of 20 to 30 years. Um, so this is a generally healthy population of tens of millions of women that are undergoing screening every single year that's reliant on that historical healthcare data being available. So that's tens of millions of women who are potentially moving, changing doctors, getting diagnosis, speaking, uh, you know, seeking second opinions or treatment, and a significant amount of that complex imaging being done right over the course of 20 or 30 years. Um, and that prior imaging is so critical for breast cancer detection because breast tissue is unique. So as women are changing doctors, that's millions of CDs being burned today, overnight shipped, couriered, walked across the street, um, a lot of miles driven by women in this country, looking to pick up physical copies of their records during an arguably very stressful time. It's a total waste for providers. It's a total waste on our system and a huge burden uh, for women, many women. Um, so 
you know, I, I lead the charge here at Life Image for our consumer and women's health services. And my team spends all day working with women in their facilities to help get data in their hands in a way that they can use it. Um, we see firsthand how far I think many providers have, you know, fallen from the intent of HIPAA on a daily basis and how hard it truly is uh, for patients to get access to their own data in a format that they can actually um, use for their own purposes. And, you know, we, we often hear from women that they requested their past mammograms to be shared with them, maybe through a PHR that they now have access to or an app on their phone or even email, um, only to be told by medical records or someone at their um, healthcare facility that, you know, they, they don't, you know, their hands are tied, their policies state that the only option they have um, is to, to give them their images on a CD, but um, many women don't even have the technology in, you know, in their homes anymore to, to process a CD, right? It's not on our laptops or on our tablets. Um, so it becomes, you know, it becomes a, a really tricky situation for patients. So, you know, if, if we aren't vigilant about this you know, policy and institutional, you know, sort of status quo, what everyone is, is used to, can get in the way of patient rights under HIPAA and, and really, as we've seen with breast cancer as a scenario, um, timely patient care. So, um, you know, David, we have a lot of compliance, you know, professionals here with us today who may be taking a second look at this and realizing that, you know, they, their policies and procedures around data sharing could, you know, potentially use a second look. So, you know, I think it would be great, you know, for us to demystify HIPAA and right of access a little bit and share maybe some common scenarios that we run into, um, you know, working with patients and then get your take on where facilities may be putting themselves at risk and some things that they might, you know, want to pay attention to if maybe this falls in line with their, um, with their current practices. So um, we'll, we'll kind of start with scenario one, right? So we'll, let's say we have a patient that needs copies of her records for an upcoming appointment at another facility. Um, her doctor's office uh, you know, website says that she has to send in a letter uh, via the U.S. mail and mail that in. So she does that um, and asks for her data to be shared via a PHR that she has access to. So um, if she does receive a response, let's say the facility um, does go ahead and give her her images, but um, is only able to either, you know, mail them uh, on a, a CD or burn them onto a CD and have her come pick them up. So what are your, your thoughts for the group on that scenario? Yeah, so I think, um, well, well, first off, uh, we're working under HIPAA, so let's run that scenario first. I'm going to run all three. I want to talk HIPAA, I'm going to talk high tech, and we're going to talk cures, okay? But let's start with HIPAA. Um, first off, I mean, I know that this practice goes on. Um, uh, on the second bullet point that the office, you know, requires that requests be sent via U.S. mail. Look, you know, the um, uh, uh, federal regulators put out an FAQ within the last couple of years that specifically addressed this, and and they specifically asked and answered that question. And the answer is that requiring that somebody use snail mail or U.S. mail is not consistent with the HIPAA. Um, right of access regs. So that one's kind of the easy one from a compliance perspective. Um, that can be one channel uh, of, of 
uh, of receiving requests, but it can't be the only one. In terms of under HIPAA, in terms of you know the CD or not, um, what HIPAA says is that the data must be provided in a readily producible form and format, um, or, or it, actually what it says, it must, must meet the requested format of the patient if readily producible in that form and format. Um, so, um, and so you get into this whole discussion about, well, what is readily producible? And, and so on that one, it's a little bit more of a judgment call for the organization. But I think that even under HIPAA, okay, even under our, you know, 1996 law implemented in the 2000, revised a bit under the High Tech Act, I think it's getting harder and harder to say that handing it over, adding the information over on a CD, or, or I should say this way, not meeting a patient's request to, to provide the information in a format that is a little bit more modern and convenient, it's getting tougher and tougher to say that, well, it, you know, we really don't have the ability to provide it in any other format than a CD. I won't say that it's a bright line, though. I will say that HIPAA provides for a judgment call there. It's just getting tougher and tougher to say that, um, that you know, requesting that it be provided in some manner other than a CD that that's, that that's justified. If we shift to the High Tech Act, if um, you know you have an organization that's trying to meet their view, downloaded, transmit standards, and they're representing to the government that they should um, uh, uh, that they're meeting those standards, um, handing it over via CD does not meet the VDT standards. But again, you don't have to. You can meet the VDT standards without providing all the data. Uh, via some type of portal. So I can't say that that's necessarily a, a bright line either. I will say this though, under, under the, the Cures Act standards, um, certainly when they are finalized, the whole, the whole point of the um, open standardized APIs without special effort is to recognize the fact that you know, driving around town and getting a CD that you don't have any ability to utilize, that's the type of special effort that the government's trying to, to modify. So I think, um, you know, that kind of provides a, a, a full review of this fact pattern under the various set of rules that we have today. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And, I, you know, I want to come back really briefly to sort of the first comment that you made that maybe is, you know, more of the low-hanging, obvious sort of compliance HIPAA fruit here, which is, you know, the doctor's office requiring that the that the request be sent via mail. I would just, I would call that out for this audience in particular, only just, you know, speaking firsthand from someone who is uh, um, constantly scouring the internet, right, with various provi providers to see how we get women to make these requests of their provider. This bullet number two is the method that I see most commonly including with institutions in this country that you would expect to be much more innovative um, and that are very well-known brands of health system across the country that if you go to look at their medical records site, um, you know, send us a request via mail to this physical address is the only option. Um, so we find that one most commonly. So, so I would call that out for those on the phone just to, to maybe uh, take a look. <laughs> to take a yeah, look at that. Yeah. Well, the other thing to call out, just to keep, just so people can understand where the the the, the minds of the regulators are right now, is 
you know, there, there is the belief that some of these um, activities kind of, you know, under the, under the guise and under the label of, of HIPAA's uh, privacy and security compliance, that they're anti-competitive. I mean, if you look at the proposed rules under the Cures Act, um, you know, CMS and the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT under HHS, they are very specifically saying that we believe that this, this IT infrastructure, these electronic health records that we paid as taxpayers billions and billions of dollars for are not being, we're not getting the return on that investment because we have organizations that are putting up false barriers. And, mm -hmm. and, and some would argue, you know, barriers that are inconsistent with federal law when they say things like, we will only accept your request for your record request if you, if you find a stamp and, and mail us a letter. Right. And so that's where I said, you know, whereas HIPAA still has that May component, like the data, you know, it's okay to provide it under certain circumstances. And then you do have patient right of access, which is a shall requirement, okay? But what the Cures Act does it just blows past all of this kind of discussion and variability about what is a readily producible format and says, look, <laughs> in every other industry, this has all been figured out, okay? In the banking industry and in other you know, consumer industries, we figured out how to make data available in a secure way, in an efficient way, um, in, a, in, a, in a manner, in a way that's convenient to, to consumers, and in this case, patients. And so that's the clear direction. So I think even before the Cures Act rules are finalized, I think it's important for the industry to understand where the minds of the regulators are. And that is that, hey, we, we should not uh, go, go back in time 30 years in how we require uh, patients to seek their information. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's, that's great additional context. Um, as we think about another scenario um, really quickly, so similar situation, right? She needs copies of her records. Let's say this time she calls and requests, you know, that her mammograms be shared to an app on her phone. Um, that app includes the ability for her to send an electronic, an email with an electronic link that allows the facility to fulfill that request electronically straight to her account on that app. But the facility responds, that they have a designated portal or they have a third party that they work with to do this. Um, so they're, they're not willing to send it to the app of her choosing, um, but they direct her to a different app or a different portal. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think that if that works for the patient, that's fine. You know, um, um, you know as it stands today, if the patient comes and says, I have my app, um, the hospital does not have to utilize it, okay? Um, but then at the same time, the hospital cannot demand that the patient utilize their app, okay? And so then we get into this, you know, what is what is the, what is the patient requested, and then what is workable from the institution's perspective, and and there's kind of this understanding that you know, in the end of the day, perhaps we have to do it in paper. I mean, there are, are in the FAQs that that have come out. Um, from HHS, there's an example of, you know, may, maybe um, that's the only way between the parties that it can be done. Um, but it is, I guess, the, the main point of, of, of this scenario is that the, the institution can't just fold their arms on, on their platform. They don't have to agree at this point to the patient's uh, preferred approach, 
but they also they can't just fold their arms. What that what that results in, unfortunately, in, in you know practically, is either back to paper or like to the CD approach that we talked about in scenario one, which is why the CARES Act is came to be right and and what um you, you know the government is borrowing a page from the foundations of the internet the internet would not have happened if tim berners lee had not come up with the um http standard okay it's this brilliant computer scientist that basically said wow this internet's really cool but it's not as cool as it could be because we don't have a standardized way for documents to be presented on these networks and so he came up with the standard so that everybody writes to the standard we're going to be able to move data all over where it needs to go, where it wants to go, and it really is going to expand this thing, and the World Wide Web was born. What the Cures Act essentially is doing is setting up, and they really are adopting these, um, uh, you know, they call them the FIRE standards, fast healthcare, uh, I'm going to forget the IR, but the FIRE standards, and they're trying to come up with the equivalent of the Tim Berners-Lee HTTP uh, standards. So that's, that's where we are headed to a point where we don't have to have this thrash as we have here in scenario two, right? But for today, it's just important for both sides to know. Patient can't, you know, fold arms and demand that you have to do it, do it my way, but nor can the facility. And so, you know, hopefully the parties can, can meet in the middle with the, un, under the uh, overall uh, understanding of where the policy is headed. Again, that's the reoccurring theme here that I think is important. Yeah, absolutely. So there, there may be, it's, it's a, such a great way to put it, right? Neither can fold their arms and decide to be an immovable object. So in a situation where they have a, a disagreement, right, um, there has to be a little bit of back and forth and a little bit of compromise to say, okay, what will work? What is a usable format um, for you? You know, that, that makes perfect sense. So I think the last scenario we wanted to go through is um, a slightly different flavor. So um, she requests her PHI to be shared maybe via mobile app, Maybe it could be via anything, really, right? A PHR, what you know, whatever it is. But the facility, most important point here is that the facility states that generally this is against their institutional policy, um, but they're willing to share her records directly with whoever her next provider is, um, if they if she'll supply that information. So, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so I think that it, it's interesting because um, you know the the patients have this this right of access it's an absolute shall and there's timelines tied to it and so on um, we come back to a little bit of where we were in scenario two because that right of access does not include today it doesn't include um, re requiring that it can go to the patient's choice of, of, of the app but I would say um, you know providing the information to another facility does not I mean, if the patient's okay with that and the patient feels that that satisfies their request for their information, fine. But I still think that if, the, I don't think that sending it to another facility directly meets the patient right of access uh, requirements that are in HIPAA. So you end up in that same spot as scenario two where the parties are gonna have to work out you know, a reasonable format for the information to be provided. But again, if, and also if the patient is comfortable with it going to, um, the other organization, if that if that you know meets the patient's needs, you know sure. that that's fine as well. Yeah. Yeah, this is one that we see uh, probably most commonly with patients participating in a clinical trial, 
or uh, something like that, right, where they're maybe not sending it to another provider, but they need it, they want it for their own use and then may provide it elsewhere. Um, and so it, we get into that sort of sticky situation um, where, you know, sending it directly to, you know, party X um, doesn't get it in the hands of the patient, which is what maybe they, what they're ultimately looking for. So um, definitely appreciate your perspective on that. Um, I think we'll just kind of, you know, wrap it up. And then I know we, we want to open it up for questions, you know, covered a lot of ground today. So want to talk about, you know, now what? I think the first, looking at policy and process, um, you know, one of the, the simplest and most innovative approaches that you can take as you, as you take a look at this, take a second look at um, the information here today is take an experiential and an empathetic approach um, to your current policy and processes. So I would encourage everyone um, here, regardless of your role, to first uh, take the first step even this week and walk through the process of requesting imaging records or medical records to be sent to you um, as a patient from the institution that you represent. Um, so, you know, actually go look online, see if you can find it. Um, pay attention to whether um, it was fulfilled in the way that you um, asked, how many steps you had to take, how long did it take, um, could you even find the place where you were supposed to get instructions on how to do this and make the request, um, was it convenient for you, uh, you know, how much time did it take, how much back and forth, and some of that I say, you know, obviously is going to tie directly back to HIPAA, but some of it is really um, ultimately just going to come from a, a consumer and patient experience perspective um, and ensuring that your organization is um, really meeting the spirit of this and not making it, uh, not blocking patients from getting their data unintentionally just based on outdated policies or um, kind of institutional thinking. I think that experience will speak volumes and will really tell you where to look next. Um, as you work to, to make sure you're closing gaps between what your processes and policies might be and, you know, the privacy rule and right of access and, and some of those different areas. I think the, you know, the second is really um, to be a champion and start to shift the institutional thinking for either your facility or those that you represent. You know, each facility has to ultimately make a decision to support your patients with more portable methods of gathering, owning, and sharing their health information moving forward. So, you know, we organizations are already starting to do this, right? So I've cited some examples where we've seen some very large innovative health systems who are not moving in this direction yet, um, but that's not to say that everyone um, um, is, is holding out. So, you know, organizations are already starting to move in this direction, certainly as pressure from the federal government, but also patients are starting to sort of force the issue and they're having to take a look at this, uh, again, just for patient satisfaction and to help avoid sort of patient leakage, if you will, and then moving to, to other facilities. Um, and then finally, you know, take a look at relevant technology. So, you know, again, consumers have, we've grown accustomed to accessing information we need through digital formats, especially on our phones. Uh, but the technology that, that your organization will need to meet these expectations and stay compliant exists today. Um, it's being leveraged by health systems today. It's available through multiple companies. Um, there are companies with software and networks that enable cloud-based, secure, HIPAA-compliant uh, data sharing with from provider to provider and provider to patient. 
um, I would encourage you know this audience to explore those and see if you can find something that's really the right fit um, based on the timing of, of changes to come and also um, you know budget and kind of organizational priorities and level of complexity that you're willing to take on. Um, but the technology doesn't have to be complicated and it doesn't have to be hard or expensive to install and it exists now. Um, so again, I would certainly encourage you um, to take a look at that.